Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with reports emerging that Trump played a hands-on role in directing his aides to have the 2020 election results overturned after having failed to convince his vice president not to certify Biden's victory. Joining us to discuss progress or the lack thereof in bringing Trump and his coup plotters to justice is David Rothkopf, a contributing editor at USA Today and The Daily Beast, as well as the CEO of TRG Media, producers of podcasts including National Security Magazine and Deep State Radio, which Rothkopf hosts. Previously, he was a senior official in the Clinton administration and the editor of Foreign Policy Magazine and the author of a number of books, including Running the World, The Inside Story of the National Security Council on the Architects of American Power, and his latest, Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. We will discuss his article at the Daily Beast, If Merrick Garland Doesn't Charge Trump and His Coup Plotters, Our Democracy is Toast, and whether or not Attorney General Garland's cautious approach towards punishing the insurrectionists is sufficient given the defiance of people like Steve Bannon. Then we'll look into the resumption of the nuclear talks in Vienna between Iran and China, Russia, France, Germany, the EU and the UK, with indirect talks with the US, who the Iranian chief negotiator condemned today, along with Israel. Joining us to discuss the possibility of getting a deal after Trump pulled out of what he considered the worst deal in history is Dr. Trita Parsi, the Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and the co-founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. His books include Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Then finally, with the Republic... Then finally, with the Caribbean nation of Barbados cutting ties with the British Crown to become a republic last night in a midnight ceremony featuring Prince Charles and Rihanna, we will speak with Dr. Ronnie Yearwood, a lecturer in law at the University of West Indies in Barbados, where he teaches international law, international trade, legal systems, governance and constitutions and politics and law. And before we go to our first guest, today is Giving Tuesday. And since I recently resigned in protest from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, Background Briefing is now completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is David Rothkopf, a contributing columnist at USA Today and The Daily Beast, as well as the CEO of TRG Media, producers of podcasts including National Security Magazine and Deep State Radio, which Rothkopf hosts. Previously, he was a senior official in the Clinton administration and also the editor of Foreign Policy Magazine and the author of a number of books, including Running the World, The Inside Story of the National Security Council and The Architects of American Power. And his latest book is Traitor. A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. And he also has an article at the Daily Beast. If Merrick Garland doesn't charge Trump and his coup plotters, our democracy is toast. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, David Rothkopf. Hi, Ian. Well, there's actually a, a number of reasons why well, democracy could be toast, and not the least of which is the multi-layered and comprehensive attacks on the vote itself by the Republicans, uh, which they're shameless about. And you've got gerrymandering, where they can pick up the House before a vote is cast. You've got voter suppression on voting day, and then you've got the Republican legislatures counting and certifying the vote, and if they don't like it, they can change it. And this absolutely orchestrated attempt across the country to go after canvassing boards and voting boards and harassing people who are normally neutral poll workers and replacing them with Trump stop the steal partisans. So this is an incredibly critical time in our history, is it not? I don't understand why the Democratic Party and the, and the representatives in the House and Senate don't have their hair on fire. Well, that's a pretty depressing summary, and I have to say I'm glad that I'm getting the big background briefing check that I get for appearing here <laughs> to help, uh, help, help, help me cope with that. But, yeah, I mean, you, you described it exactly right. There is a multi-front assault on democracy in the United States. It includes an assault on voting rights, uh, but it also includes the recent history of Republican administration in which every effort was made to place the president above the law and beyond the reach of justice. And, uh, you know, to the extent to which both of those efforts are successful, we will be undermining fundamental tenets of our democracy, and it's unlikely we'll get them back, particularly if the Republicans win in 2022 and 2024, which of course will be um, more likely, not just because our system was already kind of rigged in their favor, starting with the Constitution but uh, and the, the strange apportionment of, of seats in the Senate, but straight through to, to these various abuses and and efforts at cheating. So the Democrats' hair should be on fire. And frankly, I think the Democrats should be running on it. You know, there are too many Democrats whose view it is that, you know, this is politics as usual. There's two parties. There's a Republican Party and a Democratic Party, and they should be treated uh, the same. And, uh, you know, the GOP has policies and the Democrats have policies. But that's not true. There's one political party that's dealing with the issues of governing the United States, and the other political party is serially committing crimes and undermining our values uh, in, in incredibly dangerous ways. And the Democrats need to call them out and say Trump was corrupt. The, the, you know, the insurrection was a Republican concoction, and they've defend, defended it ever since. The offenses you know, against voting rights are not about you know, the law. They're about people. They're saying people of color shouldn't be able to have the same vote as white people in America. Uh, it's outrageous. And, and, and you know, every place that we can challenge them, we need to challenge them. Well, in terms of your article of the Daily Beast then, uh, David, if Merrick Garland doesn't charge Trump and his coup plotters, our democracy is toast. Is that to say that if you can make an example of these people, like uh, Stephen Bannon and we're learning now from news reports just coming out that there's a lot more. I don't know where the, where the information's coming from, but it seems to be pretty 
accurate and very credible in terms of what went on at the Willard Hotel in those two days before, uh, particularly on the 5th and the 6th, that Trump's lawyers, Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman and Boris Epstein and Steve Bannon, were totally in contact with him. We're learning that now, that Trump was micromanaging. He was hands-on in trying to turn over the election. And after they tried to persuade the vice president to go along with this unconstitutional coup, they then decided to pull out all the stops and get Tommy Turberville and a bunch of their their sort of acolytes on on the Hill to help them out. So will this situation require certainly Bannon in an orange jumpsuit, but hopefully Trump too? You know, I, th- I think that it does. You know, I mean, it's not just that Trump was coordinating with them on the 5th and the 6th. The 5th and the 6th did not, you know, sort of emerge um, as, you know, the, the, the broom at the Willard was not taken on the morning of the 5th. This is a big effort that was planned for months before Trump was meeting with people before uh, the, the, the the events in the 6th were uh, funded and, and, you know, including apparently by uh, a, a wife of a Supreme Court justice. You know, it was logistically complicated. And, you know, it was all in support of a campaign of lying about the election results that was more than just lying, you know, Giuliani and Lynn Woods and some of these other characters were out there in state after state after state trying to get election results illegally overturned. And, you know, in some states, you know, and we have a you know case apparently bubbling along in Georgia, uh, you know, they were, you know, intimidating public officials and, and suggesting to them that they break the law on behalf of, of Trump and company. This is a conspiracy to undermine the election. And if it doesn't go unchallenged, what do you think is gonna happen? You know, will it happen again in 2022 or 2024? Uh, if, if people who were involved in it feel that, you know, they are beyond the reach of the law because perhaps there is inaction in the Justice Department or perhaps there's uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a belief that in 2022, the Republicans will take back the House or take back the Senate and end investigations into this stuff that, that exists there. And by 2024, you know, the DOJ will be unwilling to take action against Trump because he's a candidate and it'll look like it's political. And after that, Trump or whoever is the Republican uh, president who might win would simply undo any convictions that existed. This is a very, very bleak picture, particularly because, and I don't, you know, you started out depressing me, and let me let me return the favor, particularly because I don't think voting rights legislation is going to pass the Senate, because I don't think there's going to be filibuster reform that will enable it to pass. Right, and they've run out of time with the, almost, I think, with the other voting rights bill, John Lewis uh, won. So just in terms of tactics, though, in terms of Bannon, who's really defiant, and obviously his attempts through the courts to have discovery on and publish all, all of, the, of what the committee knows about him, an example of that kind of defiance. With criminal contempt, though, he doesn't necessarily at the end of the day, have to testify, does he? I mean, with, with civil contempt, uh, 
the, the purpose of that is to force people to testify. So are we ever going to hear from Bannon, or do you think that they've yeah, got I enough think goods? Yeah, hear incessantly from Bannon, just not under oath. You right, know, I, of course, yeah. You know, I think, I think Bannon sees this as an opportunity. He's not in jail. You know, and, uh, you know, I see, think he sees this as a way to throw the spotlight on him. Uh, the charges against him are misdemeanor charges. The downside for him is low. The upside for him is that it makes him look, you know, to the subset of the population that's buying into this stuff as a kind of a, you know, martyr hero. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he's got a bunch of Republicans, you know, either defending him actively um, or alternatively just remaining silent and saying, you know, you know what these got people did, you know, let's turn the page. <laughs> so, you know, Bannon, I think, thinks he's in the catbird seat right now. Well, he could be in a in the jail cell in the basement of the, of the Capitol if the committee wants to play hardball. I, I'm not sure... And, Nobody and, wants to play. Who's playing hardball? I don't, you know, I mean, they're I not. Playing. That's People the, are going to play hardball, but nobody's playing hardball. We, well, just, <laughs> you know, the, the Republicans are playing hardball. They said, "Hey, you know, the Constitution. Screw that. You know, the transfer, peaceful transfer of power that's existed for two hundred and, um, you know, forty years in the United States. Screw that. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna do whatever the hell we want. They play hardball, and the Democrats and the DOJ are, are, are tiptoeing around it." So is that to say then that the Attorney General Garland's cautious approach towards punishing these uh, insurrectionists has to be ramped up because you've got, as I say, you've got the defiance of, uh, of Bannon who's in your face. Jeffrey Clark looks as if they might move against him. Meadows seems to have decided to cooperate. Apparently he's going to deliver documents and sit down for deposition. What would you like to see from Attorney General Garland? Well, first of all, we don't we don't know you know what's going on behind the scenes, and you know it's very possible that there are a bunch of investigators uh, working with uh, U.S. attorneys or others in the Department of Justice who have you know begun to make a list of crimes and are compiling evidence and are putting it before grand juries and are going to bring charges against these people, but because you know. These things happen in secrecy. You know, you have sort of two schools of thought. There are a bunch of people going, well, you see, the secrecy proves that they're doing it the way it should be done. And then there's other people who've had a little experience who are like, well, you know, we have no evidence that anything's going on. And Christopher Ray said he was unaware of an investigation into Trump. And Schiff said he was unaware of an investigation into Trump. And, um, you know, perhaps they would be being coy about this. But you know, what I think we need to do is we need to hold these people accountable. And I don't think there is an unlimited amount of time to do it for the reasons I said earlier. There's a, uh, they're not going to take action close to the next election. The next election's in a year. Uh, if the next election goes, uh, the, you know, against the Congress, then, uh, you know, against the Democrats in the Congress, then these investigations, January 6th investigation, is going to be ended and the various cases and so forth associated with it will be, you know, eviscerated for that reason. And of course, there's another problem, which is the longer this 
you know, pe the people associated with this don't face jail terms, the more the people in the Republican Party say, see, they didn't do anything wrong. And this is all just, you know, media plot. This is like the Russia hoax. Well, you know, and I know the Russia hoax wasn't a hoax. Exactly. We well, that's where your article is, nails this character that Barr set up, John Durham. Why Gartland is helping him for the life of me, I don't understand, because John Durham's findings, now all of the conservatives, all of the Republicans, and, and the press to some extent will go along with it. If you finally come up with a smoking gun, and there certainly are smoking guns out there, and there's a lot of stuff in, in the Mueller report that was never even looked at, because Barr managed to marginalise that. So isn't the net result of what Garland's done is to basically give the Republicans the ammunition to say, well, whatever we find out about Trump, it's the same as uh, the Steele dossier. Isn't that the damage has already been done, hasn't it? I, th I think a lot of damage has been done. I think, you know, continuing to fund Durham, the Durham investigation is bogus on many levels, questioned in its procedures in many levels, and, and seems to be, you know, returning focus to this dossier, which, by the way, was not the sum or substance of the case being made against uh, Trump and those around him with regard to Russia. There was a uh, investigation on the Hill that you know made the Senate investigation bipartisan, made the case very clearly. There was Mueller that made the case very clearly, and so far there's been no accountability for that. I think one of the things that's uh, you know pretty outrageous in in, in regards to all this is uh, Mueller, in great detail, described something like a dozen instances of obstruction of justice on Trump's part. There are probably many more, um, but he described a dozen and made the case. Well, is anything being done about that? Uh, you know, one of the things that worries me is that, you know, Garland has taken a kind of institutionalist point of view on a number of things, going so far as to um, side with President Trump in his argument that he was within his rights as the president of the United States to defame E. Jean Carroll, you know, in the course, you know, and by in his rights, I mean, the law says that he, that he's protected if he's doing something in the course of his official duties. And so the implication there is that defaming this woman who accused him of rape was within the course of his official duties. And that's the position of the Biden Justice Department. Well, why would that be their position? You know, the, the, the reason is that they are, you know, protecting presidential prerogatives uh, for an office that is vastly overpowerful compared to what it was conceived by uh, the, the, the founders, you know. And, of course, the, the continuing reliance of the Justice Department on the Office of Legal Counsel a memo that suggests that the president cannot be indicted while in office, which is absurd on its face and has been debunked by by many legal scholars, that, you know, is, is part of this pattern. And so there's a pattern. We see what happened with Durham. We, we see what happened with regard to the E. Jean Carroll case. We've seen the slowness with which Bannon was actually indicted for clear contempt of Congress. We've seen the light sentences that a lot of the people involved in the January 6th insurrection have gotten. And we've seen no evidence of higher ups actually, you know, getting 
getting you know um, uh, held accountable. It's, some people say, well, you got to let it take time. This could take two to three years. And for all the reasons you and I have discussed, I'm not sure we have two to three years. No, we barely have a year. I think at the at the just to close up here, David. At the end of the day, the only thing that might save the Democrats is that the Supreme Court might ban abortion sometime in the next summer. But there's that, not that, a lot of time, that's for sure. I, I think that will happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we find, we'll find out more tomorrow. Well, um, I've, talked to, I've talked to a lot of people around the court, and I, you know, I think that'll happen, and that may save the Democrats. Another thing that'll save the Democrats is, contrary to what you might have read in the newspaper, Biden has had an incredibly successful first year, and he's created a lot of jobs, and he's investing a lot, and the economy should be in pretty good shape next year. Right. Well, David Rothkopf, I thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Rothkopf, who's a contributing columnist at USA Today and the Daily Beast, as well as the CEO of TRG Media, producers of podcasts including National Security Magazine and Deep State Radio, which Rothkopf hosts. Previously, he was a senior official in the Clinton administration and also the editor of Foreign Policy Magazine and the author of a number of books, including Running the World, The Inside Story of the National Security Council and The Architects of American Power. And his latest book is Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. And he has an article in the Daily Beast, If Merrick Garland Doesn't Charge Trump and His Coup Plotters, Our Democracy is Toast. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the resumption of the nuclear talks in Vienna between Iran and China, Russia, France, Germany, the EU, and the UK with indirect talks with the US. And now, a word from the president. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Getting voted into the White House. Everything looking good to the people of the world, but the market family is my boss. The voters of the world keep supporting me. To take you very far, other mothers better not upset me, or I'll send a million troops to die at war. To all you Republicans that help me to win, I sincerely like to thank you. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Trita Parsi, the Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a Professor of Political Science at Georgetown University and the co-founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council, whose books include Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel and the United States, and Losing an Enemy. Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Trita Parsi. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Trita. And I don't know whether they call them the P5 plus one talks have been revived at a luxury hotel, the Palais Coburg, in Vienna. And that involves Iran negotiating with Britain, China, France, Germany, Russia, the European Union, and of course, indirectly with the United States. They won't they refused to, to negotiate face-to-face with the Americans. But at this point, it looks like Monday was pretty upbeat. The chair of the talks, Enrique Moro, the EU official, uh, he said, I feel extremely positive about what I've seen today. And the chief Iranian negotiator, Ali Bagheri Khani, he told reporters that he's also optimistic. Today was a little less optimistic, I would say. What did you make of today's talks? I think there's going to be a continuation of uh, a bit of an up and down. I got the same messages from folks in the talks that I uh, communicated with that 
you know, perhaps the optimism of Mora yesterday is not something that they share or share any longer. But this is the rhythm of the talks. It's not all going to be, you know, positive. It may have been an effort by all sides, mindful of the very, very low expectations that existed and a lot of the pessimism to be a little bit more uh, forward leaning and a little bit more positive in the first day. But now in the second day and probably tomorrow and the day after as well, they're going to be tackling some tough issues and the, the various sides have some very significant differences. What is positive in all of this, though, is that all this talk about a plan B, et cetera, et cetera, is, is uh, in my view, extremely premature. Uh, there's still clearly an opportunity to resolve this uh, diplomatically. It does require more flexibility and more political will from all sides, but it doesn't help our plan A to prematurely start talking about a plan B. And a plan B is what, a military strike on Iran? What is a, what's plan B? In my view, there is no plan B. That's why it's even more uh, unhelpful to talk about a plan B. There is no good plan B. I mean, this uh, the Biden administration, every official who is involved in this issue, prior to going into the Biden administration, are on record, on Twitter, in interviews, condemning and criticizing the maximum pressure strategy and pointing out that it has been counterproductive. And in the last couple of days, Biden officials have in their public capacity said the same thing and pointed out that it is because of Trump that we're in this situation. So the idea that we would then go back to that policy in an active sense, the very same policy we know is the reason why we're in this mess makes absolutely no sense. I can understand that there's a desire to signal the other side that time is not infinite and, and that um, and give the impression that options exist. But if we're absolutely honest, there are no other options but to succeed with this diplomatically. And of course, former President uh, Trump abandoned uh, the talks in 2018, calling the deal the worst deal in history. Now we're learning, of course, from the CIA briefers who briefed him uh, with the presidential daily briefing that he was absolutely incurious, ignorant, couldn't absorb information, can't read, challenged everything they said, even though they, everything they delivered was entirely fact-based. That's their job. He kept disputing stuff and, and rambling on with his own ideas. So clearly the last four years were a catastrophe, but uh, a lot of time has been wasted. And uh, how far do you think the Iranians are al along in terms of having uh, enough fissile material for a bomb. The Israelis seem to think they're already at that threshold. Well, first one comment on what you mentioned earlier on, which is related to what the Israelis are saying. I think it's very interesting to see an increasing amount of Israeli officials coming out, admitting that maximum pressure was a mistake, that it has been counterproductive, that the Iranians are closer to a nuclear weapon now than they ever have been before, and it's a direct result of what the Israelis themselves did, which is that they pushed Trump, and according to uh, Netanyahu, he took credit for having convinced Trump to pull out of the nuclear deal. I'm a bit stunned that their admissions and their very blunt admissions are not being reported uh, in the US media to the matter that it should, whereas if the Israelis come out with some idea that they're gonna take military action, that immediately gets a lot of media attention. Um, I think based on these admissions itself, we should really be quite clear that the Israelis don't have much credibility on this issue at this point, because they're a big reason as to why we are in this 
uh, uh, disastrous current situation. The Iranians have advanced. They have advanced quite extensively. They have right now 17 kilos of 60% enriched uranium. They had absolutely not, nothing, zero of that before. They are back at 2,400 kilos of lower enriched uranium in total. That less than 300 before the, uh, um, uh, Trump pulled out of the JCPOA. Uh, and this is highly, highly problematic. Nevertheless, all of that LEU can be shipped out. All of these uh, measures are reversible. What is not reversible and that we should worry about, and part of the reason why this cannot be allowed to take too long, is that they will gain more and more knowledge uh, about these different processes, and that is not reversible. But that is still not to say that there isn't time for diplomacy, that uh, to say that they have advanced so far on the technical front, and as a result, the JCPA no longer has any value, I see no legitimacy for some of those statements. Now, just to follow up on Israeli uh, statements from high-ranking people like the former head of Mossad and Betty Gantz, defense minister, uh, there was a conference at UCLA recently at which the, all of that was discussed, and I covered it uh, with the uh, editor-in-chief of Haaretz, who made it very clear that he feels that the uh, the whole maximum pressure campaign was was a waste of time and counterproductive and that they should engage in diplomacy. So I'm completely with you on that, Trita, that the rest of the press have, have not focused on this at all. But the Iranians are not very cooperative, though, with, with the monitors, are they? I mean, they've, they've taken the cameras down after Trump scuttled a deal that were monitoring the activities of centrifuges. Well, well some, of those, uh, some of those cameras were blown up by the Israelis. That's also important to take note of. Right. But there are reports that they're not being cooperative with the UN officials. So can they improve that? So they, they absolutely must. They absolutely must. Uh, the inspections and transparency measures of the JCPOA are absolutely central. And any return to the deal necessitates that the Iranians reverse all of those different activities and that they go back to full transparency. They would also have to hand over the tapes of the remaining cameras that do work, but that the IEA does not have access to. That's also very critical. That's something that they have said that they would agree to, but that was in an earlier deal uh, that uh, some in Iran may argue have uh, expired. But all of that is going to be absolutely necessary. There, there's no return to the deal if some of these activities continue, just as much as there is no return to the deal if the United States keeps sanctions that are in violation of the JCPOA. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Trita Parsi, who's Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a Professor of Political Science at Georgetown University and the co-founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council, whose books include Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States, and Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. So how much is the attitudes of the new hardline leader in Iran reflected in his deputy foreign minister, uh, Mr. Bagheri Khani? Because he showed up today for today's talk, he showed up an hour late, and then he referred to the United States as, as the aggressor and that all sanctions have to be lifted immediately. And then he went on to pay homage to the martyrdom of uh, the Iranian scientists that were killed in that AI attack by the Israelis. So Connie is someone who opposed the JCPOA when it was being negotiated back in 2015. Uh, and his choice... 
as uh, lead negotiator is obviously not something that um, has been particularly encouraging for the other negotiating partners. Um, Raisi himself has always been on the record of saying that the JCPOA needs to be revived. So I'm not entirely sure that, uh, at least in, in their history, they have been on the same page vis-a-vis uh, -vis the JCPOA. But you are in general seeing an Iranian government now that has a bit of a chip on its shoulders, wants to prove itself to a domestic audience that they are going to be tougher um, uh, than the previous government. And uh, whether that ultimately will manifest itself, that they will, on some key substance issues, drive a much, much more harder, perhaps an unreasonable bargain, or whether that will be something that can be uh, satisfied with some symbolic measures remains to be seen. What happened during the first day that was interesting is that the Iranian demand or the Iranian statement that the, these negotiations are just going to be about sanctions relief, uh, which is obviously highly problematic. It's both sanctions relief and nuclear activities. That was resolved by just making sure that the sanctions working group was scheduled to work, start working one day before the nuclear working group. That seems to be just uh, a symbolic uh, uh, a measure that apparently was satisfactory to them. If that is what most of their other demands uh, amount to, then perhaps we have some degree of optimism. But if there are going to be more substantive and really insist on something such as all sanctions have to be lifted, um, that's going to be a problem. When it comes to the question of all sanctions being lifted, it's a definitional issue. All sanctions that are in violation of the JCPOA obviously have to be lifted. However, what defines whether a sanction is in violation of the JCPOA or not is not as clear-cut and has to be negotiated. But is that, when you talk about the domestic audience, and I'm, I'm not sure that the domestic audience in Iran still responds to all of that kind of hyperbole about the great Satan and the little Satan and all of that stuff. But I imagine, given the hardships of the sanctions, that the average Iranian wants the sanctions ended. And if the this conservative government, hardline government, I guess you could call it, is making those promises or making those demands, are they out on a limb? They may very well be, but I think one thing we should not forget is that absolutely the population want the sanctions to be lifted. Their confidence, however, that the United States actually will lift the sanctions, and even if it does, that it will work in, in reality, and even if it does work in reality, that it will be sustainable, meaning that the next American president, particularly a Republican president, will respect America's signature and adhere to the deal and not pull out again the way Trump did. That's a very different question. I don't think we should underestimate how much confidence amongst the general American Iranian public that absolutely wants to get to see sanctions lifted and in general want to see better relations with the West, how much confidence they have lost in the West, not just because of what Trump did, but also with what the Europeans failed to do and what Biden has not yet done. I mean, we're 11 months into Biden's presidency and still there's no goodwill measures to, for instance, make sure that some of Iran's money um, that was been frozen up uh, uh, in uh, bank accounts because of Trump sanctions can be released and be used for COVID relief, that Iran's request for a loan from IMF uh, for COVID relief can be approved. There's a lot of things that the Biden administration itself condemned when they were in opposition that they have not done yet now when they are in power. But is there a, 
a schism here between the desire on the part of the Iranian people to get back and be reintegrated into the world and the leadership that sort of depends on its own defiance and it's us against the world. Isn't that baked into the cleric's kind of apocalyptic and messianic view of the world? Um, I don't think they have an apocalyptic or messianic uh, view of the world. Uh, They have a worldview that I think most Americans and frankly a very large number of Iranians would disagree with. Um, but, But I don't think that is what's driving their policies. Um, there is definitely a schism that there's uh, a desire in some quarters there to retain um, uh, some form of an enmity uh, with the United States. But is that really what is coming into effect right now? I don't think that's the case. What you're seeing right now is that the hardliners in Iran feel absolutely vindicated that their argument that the United States is untrustworthy Uh, have been proven true. And as a result, they want to shift their focus to Russia and China and deal more with regional states rather than invest so heavily in the idea, in the promise, perhaps the illusion that the West and Iran can come to terms uh, and that the West would be able to uphold its end of the bargain. Again, I want to emphasize, you have a lot of folks there that are perhaps paranoid, But that paranoia has been vindicated by the fact that the United States pulled out of the deal. And we should not underestimate not only the psychological, but also the political impact that has had on Iran's uh, narrative and the debate and and, uh, the questions and and the options that they're willing to consider as a result. Well, Iran and and its economy are getting much, much more deeply integrated with China, are they not? And at the moment, because of high oil prices, Iran is selling a lot of oil to both China and to Russia. So obviously those ties are are increasing. But in terms of the International Atomic Energy Agency's Board of Governors voting to censure Iran because of its lack of cooperation on transparency of the nuclear sites, those uh, resolutions have been vetoed by China and Russia. They have it. And, and, you know, ultimately, this is one of the big differences that exists now compared to 2013 to 15. Back then, the Obama administration had managed to build a consensus within the P5 plus one vis-a-vis Iran. And as a result, the Chinese and the Russians were collaborating in uh, both negotiating with Iran, but also putting pressure on Iran when that was needed. That is not the situation today. Tensions between the United States and China are quite high, to to uh, uh, to put it lightly. Uh, and as a result, the Chinese have not at all been particularly collaborative uh, and open to helping the United States in this situation. And there's little to suggest that that will change anytime soon. So you're not having a unified P5 plus one compared to 2013, 2015. And as you mentioned, China is more critical now than before, because part of the reason why the hardliners think that they can drive a hard bargain and why they don't want to necessarily to invest so much in, in a reconciliation with the West is because they think that they have a, a China option that will be sufficiently good for them. The Chinese are now buying quite a lot of Iranian oil in defiance of American sanctions with the Chinese uh, treat as illegal. In fact, Europeans view those sanctions as illegal as well, but they don't have the guts to defy them. The Chinese do. Um, And and this is really uh, complicating matters tremendously. And I think, in in my view, it makes it more um, important to realize that to break the deadlock, it is not 
what kind of new pressure tactics we can come up with, but rather what type of uh, flexible yet meaningful and valuable solutions we can find. Because I think this is going to be more about giving the other side something they like than being able to deprive them of something. And that goes for the Iranians as well. Their pressure tactics ultimately are not going to work. They're going to have to be more flexible in order to get a deal. And so must the United States. So just in closing, Dr. Trita Parsi, the U.S. negotiator, uh, Robert Malley, who I've interviewed a number of times, and he's obviously incredibly experienced. He obviously is not also conducting these negotiations face-to-face, so they have to sort of shuttle back and forth. It's a little bit dysfunctional, but I guess it is what it is, as they say. But he said on the BBC over the weekend that, quote, if Iran thinks it can use this time to build more leverage and then come back and say they want something better, it simply won't work. We and our partners won't go for it. So... Is that to say that even this divided P5 plus one has some leverage? First of all, I think Rob is right. I don't, th- I don't think that if the Iranians are going to try to use the nuclear activities they have done right now to get uh, a, a different type of a deal is something that the other partners would go along with, even those that might be more sympathetic to Iran. Uh, Russia and China have both insisted that it should be the same deal as before. Here's the issue, though. That's not necessarily what's on the table, right? It's not that the Iranians are saying in order for them to come back, they're going to keep more centrifuges or they're going to have a higher level of LEU on on their soil at any point of time. What they're asking for is, A, uh, that the sanctions that Trump imposed, that was deliberately imposed to undermine the JCPOA, are lifted. They argue that those are incompatible with the JCPOA. And uh, on many of those sanctions, the United States agrees. On some of them, they don't. Secondly, they want to have some mechanisms, assurances in place that will make sure that it is not going to be as easy for the United States to pull out of the deal in the manner that Trump did. All of the mechanisms that were created for the JCPOA were to make sure that the Iranians couldn't cheat. was about monitoring Iranian activities. It was about making sure that if they cheated, they would be swiftly hit with sanctions, the snapback option in in the Security Council, for instance. There were no such mechanisms created for the compliance of the United States and Europe, for instance. So the United States is actually a country that can pull out of the deal and pay almost no cost, whereas if anyone else pulls out of the deal, they definitely will pay costs, particularly the Iranians. As long as that is a situation, the JCPA is not going to be particularly durable. Changing that doesn't change the substance of the deal. It doesn't change the give and take between the United States and Iran. It changes the manner in which the very deal that they have agreed upon can be made durable and that it can be better monitored. If that is something that the U.S. side finds unacceptable, then I think that may end up being a problem. In my view, it shouldn't be unacceptable. In my view, it actually is something that helps make sure that a deal that the current Biden administration says is strictly in the U.S.'s national interest, well, if that is the case, it should also be in our interest to make sure that that deal is more durable. And creating these mechanisms that would increase the cost for all sides, not just the United States, from pulling out of the deal, it actually is something that makes the deal more enduring, and that's a good thing. Well, Dr. Trita Parsi, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. 
And again, I may speak with Dr. Trina Parsi, who's Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a Professor of Political Science at Georgetown University and the co-founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. His books include Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States, and Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back and go to Barbados, where the Caribbean nation cut ties with the British Crown to become a republic last night in a midnight ceremony featuring Prince Charles and Rihanna. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Barbados is Dr. Ronnie Yearwood, a lecturer in law at the University of the West Indies in Barbados, where he teaches international law, international trade, legal systems, governance and constitutions, and politics and law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Ronnie Yearwood. Thank you very much, Ian, for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, at midnight last night, there was a great deal of celebration in Barbados, and uh, there on the stage, along with the Prime Minister, you had Prince Charles and yes. the singer Rihanna, uh, yes, who yes. the Prime Minister Mia Motley declared is a national hero, and may you continue to shine like a diamond. It was absolutely lovely, and frankly, I was born in Australia, Ronnie, and okay. the Australians had an opportunity a few years back to become a republic, and they chickened out. But mm-hmm. Barbados has has bitten the bullet, right? Well, well, I think I think what what would probably separate the Australian uh, experience from the Barbados experience is actually the Australian government, if I if I'm correct, actually went to the people with the decision. Uh, so it's not a matter of chickening out. Whereas in our process, the people were absent from that decision. There was no consultation on the nature of the republic that we were supposed to become. I, I am, I am very supportive of a republic. I wanted us to become a republic, but my, my contention over the past year was that, you know what? The people need to be part of this conversation. If you're going to start your new democracy and your new republic, it has to set a tone for what you're intending. And if you're if you're talking about a newness and self-determination and coming into your own and realization of purpose, etc., well then a big part of that is that you have to talk to the people. Even if you're afraid of the outcome of that decision, or you think that you could lose that particular vote or it may not go your way, part of grown-up democracy is something that said to you, you know what? I may not get my way. And that's okay. And then you deal with it after the fact. So in some ways, there may be a bravery on the part of the Australian approach because you you engage the people and you accept it. You may not like it, but that's what democracy is. The, the, right. the majority is opinion. Uh, you respect the minority and we move on and we build the country. In our, state, in our particular case, a decision was made for us and to us. We accept that now because we were not part of the process and now we move on. It was a glorious moment for us all nevertheless because we wanted a republic. Um, but now we build and look to the future of what Barbados uh, will be. 
Well, indeed, there was a referendum in Australia. You're absolutely right, Ronnie. But that's not to say, though, that the majority in Barbados is happy with what's happening, right? I think I think the majority of people wanted a republic. Uh, I, I I haven't detected any sentiment uh, on on the ground or among friends or family or uh, workspace. I think people wanted a republic, and it's really interesting for something that we all agreed that we wanted. The disagreement. Uh, was about process. And that says a lot about leadership and if you're managing a process that you get people to, dis- that people actually disagree on something that we all want. How do you end up in that position? That says a lot that, that you're mishandling or there's been some mismanagement of how you're going about doing this because how could we be arguing over something we actually all want? And that, that's what happened in the Barbados process. The, the, the divisions and the discussions we're not necessarily about becoming a republic. We agreed on that. It was about the process and whether you engage with the people and how you would engage with the people. Is it referenda? Is it through consultative um, uh, commissions or meetings? Is it through town halls? How then do you take that opinion and collate it and express it in policy? Or um, uh, and then how do you and uh, how do you give people choices and options? Because you know, they're, they're more than, than one form of republic. Republics come in so many variations. But in some ways, you know, the government was behaving as if there was one form of republic. Uh, and this is what we are putting on the table. And you take it because this is a kind of once in a lifetime opportunity. So, you know, I, I, I have a lot of empathy for uh, the older generations who, who really wanted this moment. And I know they wanted it. And I really, I really empathize and sympathize with them. Uh, uh, but at the same point, I think part of me and my generation, I wanted a say in uh, how we should have gone about this and the type of republic that we should have become. And I feel we were robbed of a beautiful moment. I, I really I really feel that, but at the same point, that does not take away from the power of the symbolism. And that's that's you know, that's part of nuance. You know, sure. you, you can you can feel that, but you can still feel the pride of what this means for us as Barbadians and what it could mean for the rest of the world. Well, there's no question, though, is there, that the Prime Minister, Mia Motley, is an impressive person. I mean, she was a star at the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow recently, and I think she, I think she spent some time with Prince Charles there. He spoke at the ceremony at midnight, along with, I mentioned Rihanna was there as well. Yeah. Just to quote him, quote Prince Charles, from the darkest days of our past at the appalling atrocity of slavery, which forever stains our history, people in this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. So for breaking ties with the royal family, it seemed pretty friendly, frankly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I agree with you. You know, we're, 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 we, we all think the prime minister is an impressive, um, an impressive speaker and a talent uh, in terms of uh, presenting. I myself have, 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 have seen the prime minister in action. Uh, and uh, but recently, you know, I wrote some columns and I, and I write editorials. And, and part of that is I think there's, there's a distance between what I call sound and substance. So there's a lot of sound, but sometimes you, you, you can have that, that distance between the where is the substance or, you know, there's, there's a lot of words, but where's the deeds? How, how do you get things done? And I think that that may be a, a problem that, that sometimes politicians face when they can't marry leadership and management. Uh, because it's one thing to have brilliant ideas and it's one thing to, to be able to, to eloquently put those ideas out there. It's quite another to to actually manage a process 
to make things work. Uh, and that's very important because you have to deliver the goods at the end of the day. In terms of now Prince Charles and his and his particular um, utterances at the um, at the the going away ceremony, if you like, um, it it was friendly, but it was it was kind it was kind of odd where you have a representative of a family that has been part of a colonial uh, process in a very dark period of our history and 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 part of a process of terror. Um, and we must not forget that slavery slavery was was uh, an experiment in terror and and human degradation at the lowest and the worst levels. Um, in some ways, now in a speech saying, you know, uh, you managed to survive this. Well done on you for making good on your country. Um, and, and, and it, I, I don't, Sounds a bit I don't patronizing, how, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't, exactly. I don't know how to take that. Right. <laughs> it was like, so, so, so yeah. yes, you mm. uh, put to the ringer, but you know, you three hundred okay. years later, you know, good on right. you. You're still here. Yeah. You made good on this. Yeah. Really well good. done. Well done, old yeah. chap. Well done, yeah, old chap. Yes. Horrible situation. Um, I, you know, I and I and when you unpack, and the, you know, I have a tendency. My 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 students, my students laugh at me. Say, they know that when I start using the word unpack, they're like, "Oh no, we're in for it." You know, when you unpack the words, you look at them very carefully, and you start to analyze it. You realize that there there is there is there is a cognitive dissonance there that that that's that just in proportions. You're like. You re- did you actually think saying those words, or or was that could that moment have been actually a moment for apology, and then a moment for how then do we um, uh, atone for this, uh, rather than you know what you've been put through the ringer, terror, slavery, really bad, but you know you you come out on the other side. Look at you. Look at your country. You, you're stronger right. for this. Yeah. And well, let, let, let me just uh, finish up here, though. We only got a couple of minutes left here, so yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to just yeah. touch on what you think might be the repercussions here, because the Queen is ninety-five, and uh, mm-hmm. when she passes, do you think that maybe the Australians may rethink it, and other uh, uh, British Commonwealth countries might start thinking about becoming a uh, a republic? I think, I think, I think they could. Um, my my thing would be I would hope they there's a process if they do it that kind of kickstarts our democracies because we would recognize and appreciate that I think across the world democracies are in trouble. Uh, we seem to be hitting a kind of wall in terms of how do you increase voter participation, how do you increase real engagement, how do you bring certain factualness back to our process of politics, uh, and I and I think if they do it. These could be moments, if managed properly and correctly, that could reignite uh, democratic processes and kind of restart our struggling politics and our struggling um, polity. So it could be done properly. Uh, it could happen. Uh, at the same point, uh, I guess the question would be, do Canadians and Australians struggle with this sense of um, national identity that they feel that there's a higher over, you know, whether... This, this ceremonial queen is the head of state or not, or are or, or, or their countries in their, those political countries today simply get on with what they're doing. Um, and then there are issues there of race um, that, would, that, that 
kind of married to that to that question. So so it, it's a difficult one and in terms of whether other countries will follow, because I think for us in the Barbina experience, it was a, it was an important moment uh, because there there is there is an element of race. You can't you cannot put that aside. There's a there's a moment of, of removing uh, that that what we consider the last vestige of uh, colonialism uh, and trying to reignite our democracy and our national identity because the, the reality is though we have been independent since 1966 we have been running this for 55 years um, and that also has to be appreciated uh, this is not a new thing for us so this this one moment was just to kind of cap it off if you like um, as we build right. the new country. Well, Dr. Ronnie Yearwood, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, um, uh, Ian. I really enjoyed it. Um, hope we catch up with you at some other point. We will again. And I've been speaking with Dr. Ronnie Yearwood, who's a lecturer in law at the University of West Indies in Barbados, where he teaches international law, international trade, legal systems, governance and constitutions, and politics and the law. And he joined us from Barbados. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. One more light goes out